Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find the show on iTunes, which is Apple Podcasts, on Google Play Music, the new Google Podcasts app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and on the Overcast app for iOS. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from the road in Minnesota, my guest is a bassist, producer, music supervisor, and platinum-selling songwriter who has recorded and or performed with a most impressive list of top-name artists, ranging from Dave Matthews to Ben Folds to Robert Plant, Marin Morris, Tom Jones, the Indigo Girls, many, many more. In fact, tonight he is playing in St. Paul with Emmylou Harris, who he performed with last night in Milwaukee. His performances and original music have been heard on various film and television projects for clients, including the ABC and USA Networks, Burger King, and General Motors, among others. You've been hearing a song he composed and recorded earlier this year entitled East Village Rent Party. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Chris Donahue. Good afternoon, Bruce. Chris, great to finally talk to you. Thanks for making time for this. Absolutely my pleasure, my friends. Well, I, I really have a burning question that I want to start with, but I'm required by NHTE format to first have you tell the listeners about that song that we were just playing called East Village Rent Party. Okay, so that's a track that uh, from a music library collection that I wrote of, of um, up-tempo jazz cues uh, to be used, as I say, in a music library. And I record that with... Brian Blade, jazz drummer Brian Blade, and uh, my friend Jeff Coffin, uh, who's currently the saxophonist in the Dave Matthews Band. He has been for some years now, but I, I knew Jeff. Um, I've known him about as long as I've been in Nashville. Uh, and then in the last 10 or 12 years or so, we've gotten opportunities to work together a bit more and and uh, just hang out. And once in a while, um, <laughs> I get to go uh to these jam sessions that Jeff hosts at his house, which to me are like a shark tank, you know, because ah. he's, he's such an incredible talent. He brings very high level players in there and players will bring their own new compositions. They might be workshopping or, or working on sometimes hmm. people just want to play tunes and do that too. Interesting. Um, but he's, uh, but yeah, both of those guys uh, are beautiful humans. And uh, I was not sure how, this this music was going to sound you know i'm uh, i am writing this stuff on my own and whereas with music library work i can generally do some pre-production and get an idea of what a track will sound like or actually just go ahead and do the track um uh, this was this was different in that i had to show up to the studio with with brian blade and jeff coffin <laughs> And not knowing what this music was going to sound like and just having to trust wow. trust, uh, trust them, trust wow. myself and uh, trust the universe that, that it was going <laughs> to that it was going to turn out the way I wanted. And, and boy, did it, you know, and it's no surprise. Again, as I say, they are they are just such sweet people and um, humble and enthusiastic. And what we um, like the like. The best musicians I know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter whether they are being paid or how much they are being paid. They show up and they just bring everything and and give all at all it. the time. I love it. So that's what, yeah, that's what they did for me. And it um, uh, and we had a blast. We recorded 10 cues in a day, Brian and I. Wow. Um, yeah, Brian was there all day. Jeff came in for a few songs in the morning. Uh, uh guy named Steve Patrick played trumpet on some cues in the afternoon, and then my friend Steve Coomer played keys in the evening, and uh, that's all part of that package. Now, listeners, I did say at the beginning that Chris is on the road right now, and he's talking to me from Minnesota, but no listeners that he actually, when he is home, <laughs> lives in Nashville. So, Chris, did you record that song there and, and the others that day that you described? Was that in Nashville, or was that, I'm, I'm feeling like it was in New York. Yeah, we did that in the sunroom at the House of Blues 
studio in Nashville. Ah. Jeff lives in Nashville also, as I said earlier, and uh, Brian uh, just flew in for the day. Okay. I'm I'm being influenced by the song being called East Village Rent Party. <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, this this music that I was asked to write needed to have a very gritty urban uh, feel to it, up-tempo, kind of manic, and and I'm a New Yorker, so uh, when just when finding names for these for these little pieces, I just uh, with the with the um, the gentleman from the who, who contracted me to do this work, we we just sort of bounced title ideas off one another when it, when they were all done. When we were recording, they were just entitled number one, two, three, four, wow. five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Wow. <laughs> we picked titles afterwards. Wow, very based on interesting. How the, uh, the music hit us. That's neat. That's different. Well, okay, so what I wanted to ask you first is I, I'm wondering how at 1 p.m. Central Time you're able to do this interview with me, meaning given that you do have the Emmy Lou Harris show tonight, what what does the call time look like for a day like today? Did did y'all already do sound check? Will you do it later? What other obligations do you have on a show day? And not to mention, I said in the intro that y'all played in Milwaukee last night. So when was the travel to St. Paul? After the show or this morning? Yes, we are traveling on a bus. And we travel through the night. The bus uh, has sleeper compartment in the middle with 12 bunks. Um, we're only a crew. I, I think we've only got nine of us out here, so there are a few extra bunks. But um, generally the way it works after a show is that you break down, load up, um, perhaps head to the hotel to freshen up, in, in this case based on what Emmy wants to do and how long she wants to stay, and then um, meet back on the bus, and the bus travels through the night to the next town. So this morning I woke up literally – on the shore of the Mississippi River in St. Paul. My hotel uh, is a riverfront hotel. So I got, <laughs> got up this morning on the bus and uh, and had the river right out the window. It was really beautiful. Wow. Um, so you generally have them in these sorts of touring situations, you generally have them first part of the day free, unless for some reason there's uh, uh, an early sound check is necessary. Sometimes at festivals, you have to do very early sound checks, even if you're the last one on at night. Mm. Um, uh, however, for tonight, which is more or less the, uh, the predictable schedule that we follow, we have the first part of the day to ourselves, and then uh, the load-in takes place around 1 p.m., and load in and setup goes on for a couple of hours, and we will sound check at four, and then have dinner, and then we've just got that time in between dinner and the show, usually about two hours, two three hours on average, and then uh, uh, tonight actually is the last show of this run, so we're all going home. Uh, I'm actually staying the night because I have to. I have a session in Nashville in the morning, and I have to. I have to arrive back home before the bus will arrive because it's a very long drive. Um, so, uh, but on any other, like last night, we would complete that work day and then it's just rinse and repeat. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Next day, same thing. And then once in a sure. while you get a day off. Of course. Well, so that sounds like Loden is happening as you and I are speaking right now. And then yep. you'll go for sound check and then dinner is at the venue. Yeah, sometimes dinner, most times dinner is provided to fan use. Sometimes it's brought in, and sometimes uh, not so much in these Emmy situations. Sometimes the um, the band and crew get buyouts, so basically the promoter will hand you a sum of money to go uh, to a restaurant. Ah, okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask you. You said that uh, then you have a two hour window. And I wondered, are you obligated to stick around the venue that whole time? Do you go back to the hotel? Is it what you just described where you're, where you're out, maybe at a restaurant. Yeah, it, it varies based on what, how much time you've actually got and how far the hotel is from the venue. And, uh, uh, if you have friends in the city and you're going to get together with them, you, that's a, generally a time when I would do that. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Uh, but you know, it's a little different every day and sure. I try to use the time that, um, isn't occupied with work 
I will uh, I will go and find the best coffee, the best locally roasted <laughs> coffee that I can find. Even if sometimes I take a bus or a long hike to get somewhere. Wow. Um, frequently, I will go if I'm near hiking trails. I'll go out and try and spend as much time outside as possible on any given day, um, and that works out well out west many times. Like uh, playing Telluride, uh, for example. You're <laughs> you're in the middle of these gorgeous hiking trails yeah. and about 3000 elevation feet of elevation on either side of you know yeah. so it's it's wonderful and uh at the very minimum when whenever possible i try to at least uh just get in a little bit of exercise or hit a climbing gym i'm a mm. i'm a climber so uh, so yeah that's that's what the flow of the day feels like well, Generally. see, this is this is all interesting to me. What you're describing for yourself personally, with with some of those interests, with coffee, with hiking, things of that nature. Because I've talked with other guests on this show about how being on the road doesn't mean that you can't work on other projects at the same time. And I was going to ask if that applied to you too, because in the intro I mentioned some of the clients that you've done work for. So I wondered if you are able to, for example, record while you're on the road for projects that you might be working on for someone else. Yes, that has absolutely happened. Um, it used to happen more often than it does now because I just try to, uh, you know, of course you're limited as to how much stuff you can bring if there sure. are flights involved. So for this two week run that I've been on, we actually started in California and flew to LA from, um, Nashville. So a bus was coming to meet us, but we had to uh, load that trailer before we left for LA so that we would have our own gear. And, um, but in general, I try to travel as lightly as possible. And it's very, very rare now that someone will call or email and say, can you play on something right away? I got to have it by <laughs> tonight or tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I, for the gear that I would have to take around and traveling with a computer, uh, I, I try not to do that. Um, it, it's just not, uh, you know, it's not worth it most times. Most times I can say, I tell you what, I get back on this date. Can we do it then? Or I, I'm willing to just uh, let it go and think it wasn't meant to be. But in the meantime, I can um, travel a whole lot lighter. Well, and listeners, Chris and I are just meeting each other for the first time, but so far in this approximately 13 minutes that we've been talking, Chris, I I have you pegged as someone who has really, is the word striven, <laughs> who has strove to, to achieve, <laughs> and, and maybe you have achieved it, maybe you found it, the, the work-life balance. I, th I think maybe that's some of what you're talking about, in addition to, like you said, if it's not critical, then it can wait until I get back to Nashville. Yes, um, I am. It is. It's just a practice. I don't know that I will ever get it right entirely, <laughs> but um, uh, like many things, it, it is. It is an ongoing practice, and, and uh, it keeps me when I'm when I'm traveling. It, I find more than ever these days, it's a chance to. Um, to be writing if I have a, a project that I've been commissioned to do. Um, I can do some of that. I can tend to my affairs at home or, or um, uh, you know, I, I, I try to keep busy and occupied and productive and awake and alert <laughs> <laughs> and um, keep my, my energy level up generally. Um, I find that if I can do that, then the performance is that much better and uh, for me personally and and more enjoyable. Um, sometimes you get beat up in, by traveling, and obviously there, uh, you can't do anything about that. And um, but yeah, I just feel uh, I do feel it's really important not to wake up the musician and go to bed the musician. Mm -hmm. uh, um, self-identifying like that. Um, I did it for a number of years and it totally burned me out. And so I realized there are all these other things I can, can accomplish and I can read and I can write and I'm going to use this time doing that because when I'm back at home, I have two teen daughters and a wife who's <laughs> in grad school right now. And life is very, very busy, happy, busy. Yeah. But yeah. 
Um, so I get some space, like even if it's an hour or two a day to just do things that I would not be able to pay attention to at home the way that I would like. Well, you brought up an interesting point, though, that I guess I hadn't really considered, which is obviously, yes, we all know, as you said, that the travel itself could take its toll on you. But when it doesn't and you do have this free time, I never considered that there could be such a thing as overdoing it, meaning pushing yourself too much during that free time, because maybe you are on this tremendous bike ride or this very exhausting hike or whatever it is to where all of a sudden you hit the stage and you go, wow, this is going to be a tough one because I burned myself out too much on my leisure time today. So that that's that's an interesting point that, that you made that I, like I said, I, I can't say I ever considered that. <laughs> that has only happened to me one time because, because generally speaking, if I'm, if I'm out, uh, in the woods or on a mountain, if I have that opportunity on a show day, I will, I will make every effort to be out there as long as possible and then um, come back into uh, the venue and to my job refreshed and maybe a little, maybe a little weary in the body, but the mind alert and mm. awake. And um, it's a different kind of energy, you know, mm-hmm. my, because all that time outdoors stimulates creative thinking. And so uh, just in the most general way, it does um, – almost all the time make me uh, uh, very happily engaged when I'm performing. The one time uh, that I overdid it was when we were playing in San Diego. This is with Emmy Lou, and this is probably in 2009 or 2010. Um, I've been working with her since 2006 in her band. So we were in San Diego, and we were playing a venue called Humphreys by the Bay, Um it is literally on San Diego Bay. The, uh, the little amphitheater has is attached to the back of the hotel, and it's right on the water. People uh. pull up in their boats behind the stage to listen to the shows. Oh. Um, and so it's it's also, if memory serves, it's on this little peninsula. And I had noticed that there were sea kayaks available for rent. And we had the day there, and I thought, I'm going to go sea kayaking. So I went down there. Rented one, got out in the water. Um, it's about half. I've been, I think, maybe paddling out into the bay about 20, 30 minutes and realized I forgot to put sunscreen on this morning. And this is an oh, open boy. top kayak. Oh, boy. Um, this is not going to this is not going to go well. So I'm at that <laughs> point, well, do I turn around? No, you know what? I'm just going to try and cross my legs, do what I can. I've got my got a bandana on my head um, and just and deal with it and at least get a couple of hours of uh, paddling. In. Um, so I, I got out to, um, to a point where I actually just needed uh, a quick, uh, a quick trip to the sandbox, if you know what I'm saying. And so I decided <laughs> to try to land the kayak on this stretch of rocky shore at the base of one of the cliffs that overlooks San Diego Bay. It was probably like mm. Point Loma or something like that. Anyway, I, I've not landed a kayak um, in ocean waves before. Oh boy! And so, kayak, a wave caught me from behind. Oh boy! Rolled the kayak instinctively. I put my right arm over my head to protect my skull because I knew that this, you know, this was very, very rocky. It was not sandy yeah. uh, underneath. And yeah, and I just took a tumble. Everything went went everywhere. The boat went one way. I went another way. Mm. So <laughs> once I once I uh, crawled out of the water, uh, I managed to sort of collect what things I could. <laughs> One of my flip-flops, my bandana, and uh, and realized um, my arm was shredded by oh, this gosh. volcanic rock. And I was, so I was, I was bleeding quite a lot. Um, wow. It, they, were sur- it was a, they were surface cuts, but, but uh, there, were, there were quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all this to say, I got back in the kayak. I made it back to Humphreys with about 20 minutes to go before I really had to be in sound check mode. Yikes. And, and I walked up to Emmy and the tour manager and they were standing there right as I entered the, the, the hotel. Uh, and, and they both had this incredulous expression <laughs> on their faces and their eyes were really wide. Like what happened to you? Um, so that night I was sunburned and, and, 
badly cut <laughs> and absolutely exhausted, you know, because I was catching all that reflection off the water all day. I, I was sunburned so badly I took a milk bath. That's how bad it was, my oh shins my in particular. Wow. So wow. that was <laughs> that. that's one time where I, I look back on it now and I think, yeah, I have kids. I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't go out by myself <laughs> in a sea kayak and try to land it on, on volcanic rock. And uh, also, maybe I need to just sort of manage uh, manage my risks a little yeah, bit better yeah. from this well, point on. <laughs> and with how clearly you told the story, obviously, it really made an impression on you. I mean, you were able to tell me the year, the city, the venue. So obviously, it, it really left a, a message that you took to heart and you know readjusted in terms of what you did going forward. I, I wonder, obviously, it's not just Emmylou Harris that you perform with, given the list that I started into during the intro. So given what we've been talking about, Life on the Road, how many nights a year would you say you're outperforming with someone like this? It changes year to year based on the artist schedule and how much they decide to work. Um, there have been, uh, yeah, it's really not consistent. It can be as much as for, with someone like Emmy, she's working all the time, but she's not always working with her band. She, she does a lot of other projects and Mm -hmm. collaborative things and, and benefits and appearances. You know, she's, she travels a lot, but it's not all for, for band shows. Um, I think last year, Maybe we did 40 or so, mm-hmm. uh, which is not very much considering that some musicians I know uh, have jobs that keep them out for for uh, a couple of hundred days a yeah. year. You know, yeah. um, uh, if it's a, a newer artist that's that's getting a big push or or if they play in pit or um, rhythm sections for traveling theatrical shows, you know, mm. they'll they'll be on the road constantly. OK. Um, but so I think this year we've probably done maybe 25 shows. with. Well, and I noticed that you were out with Leanne Womack this year. So that's why, you know, I started to draw this conclusion that, you know, this guy sounds like he's out on the road quite a bit. Um, yeah, I've, I've been working with Leanne Womack this year and yeah, we're, it's, it's been a busier travel year for me than like say the last uh two or three but it's mostly weekends long weekends one-offs and things like that so i'm home most weeks okay um, living my life and uh i don't the the longest i ever left town was at one stretch was last summer where i was gone for pretty much for two months i think maybe i was Mm. home for six days in two months that was the busiest i've been many many years okay well, that, that bodes well for me the next time I come to Nashville, that, that you'll be around and, and I can buy you lunch. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners, if you subscribe, and I hope you do, if you listen to this show every week, you have to know that when I was asking Chris about if he records when he's on the road for someone's tour, I was obviously thinking of Tascam and the many recording solutions that they have. Yes, they do have some very portable options that you can consider If you're someone like Chris, who's not just grounded in one spot all the time, by now you've heard me talk about Tascam's newest mixer, which granted is not small, but it's a big time unit that you want to look into, the Model 24. It's a 24-channel multi-track recorder with an integrated USB audio interface and analog mixer. I am traveling a lot these days, and I used to take the Mini Studio Creator with me, a real compact audio interface And now I just bring the DR44WL handheld recorder plus a couple external Tascam TM60 microphones. Check out all this and more at Tascam.com. That's T-A-S-C-A-M.com. Chris, I mentioned back in the intro that you're a producer too. Check this out, listeners. Chris, you've done albums for artists ranging from a folk singer from Haiti, a recording artist from the U.K., and then from right here in the States, an act out of Brooklyn, New York. And I should mention again that you actually live in Nashville, which I assume is where you're doing those projects from? Most of the time, yes. How are you getting connected with people from Haiti, with people from UK, and, and even in the States as someone from Brooklyn, being that you're based in Nashville? Well, 
Um, which one would you like to hear about? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with the Haiti one, since that's probably the most exotic out of the three. Okay. Uh, so that came about in twenty in 2010, Haiti experienced the earthquake. And some friends of mine in Nashville and I had been kicking around the idea in the immediate aftermath of doing a benefit concert there. Hmm for uh, earthquake relief. And um, we had done that after the tsunami in Asia in the mid-2000s, uh, I think 2005. Uh -huh. And we, we recreated or we performed the entire concert for Bangladesh with different artists each taking a song. So this together after the, after the quake in Haiti and... A gentleman heard about our idea um, who who runs a record label, 30 Tigers Music. And he became very interested, and he and I were, um, were uh, sort of uh, kicking ideas around and timetables and how quickly we could get something like this together because if you don't strike um, – while the iron is hot, you know, while, while the event still has the public's attention, it can be really hard. Um, sure. So in the course of that, uh, this gentleman I'm speaking of, his name is David Macias. He runs 30 Tigers Music. Um, and David, I can't remember if, which one of us, but one of, uh, there was a New York Times piece written in, in the immediate aftermath of the quake by a journalist who went down there and um, uh heard on a taxi radio uh, a folk singer that really intrigued him and he asked the driver about it and I, if I'm remembering correctly the driver said oh I, I can put you in touch with him and so hmm. um, the artist Beken that I worked with um, first came to my attention and David's David Macias attention through that New York Times piece and the story has a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, parts to it but the long and the short of it is they, we went from the idea of doing a benefit concert to doing a Bacan album with 30 Tigers David suggested uh. it asked if I would produce it so in order to do that we had to find Bacan we had to uh, find people who knew him people that spoke English because he himself has very little he speaks wow. uh, Creole and French Yeah, and he is to the Haitian people there um, I'll say Woody Guthrie or Pete okay. Seeger. Okay. Um, he sings of the people's pain mm -hmm. in a way that really resonates with them. And uh, he's had periods where he's gone quiet. And then uh, I think he lived in France for a short time. But anyway, mm. he lives, as you would imagine, in very modest circumstances in Port-au-Prince. And we were at Managed, we managed to track him down. Planning the project took a couple of years, but it, in the end, it wound up that I went down there. Uh, I had also met a gentleman named Zach Niles uh, along the way who is American but spends a lot of time in Haiti recording Haitian artists. And he also uh, is a co-producer of the Sierra Leone Refugee All-Stars movie, and he manages that band. So he has a, a background in uh in world music okay and fortunately he was able to act as a liaison uh and per and help me find a studio where we could get bekenin to record wow. wow and this all took a, a long time to do as i say but it i made two trips there the first time was sort of a get to know mm -hmm. um and one other person that served as a mentor to me on this project uh is <laughs> This, this is a little bit of a diversion, but it's <laughs> worth it. Um, I mentioned that I was planning this to Emmy Lou around that time. I, and she said, you know, you should tell about it. It's my friend Jonathan uh, Demi. He's, he'd be, he's, uh, he does a lot in Haiti, and I hadn't realized that, but then I looked him up, and surely enough, yeah, yeah he's, uh, um, he's been uh, involved in Haitian arts and culture for a very long time and and founded a film institute down there well anyway we had this emmy and i had this conversation i forgot about it and about three weeks later i was i was at a salad bar somewhere and jonathan demi called me on my phone <laughs> and, and said yeah tell me about this project you're doing wow and and i you know put my stuff down went sat down after like 
oh my gosh, this is wow. pinch me, you know, crazy. But he, it, it was really wonderful. Um, Beken, uh, he was, he was very guarded and reserved. Hmm. Um, it took a long time to get, to earn his trust. Mm-hmm. And on that first trip, I think he was just suspicious of our intentions and sure, sure. Um, understandably so. Yeah. And, but, uh, and during that first trip, I was writing Jonathan emails regularly and getting these replies for him that, that when I was feeling discouraged about not being able to break through, I would get these, these wonderful re- responses from him that, that put wind back in my sails and, and I was able to keep going. Nice. Um, so that was the first trip. The second trip happened maybe a year, year and a half later when I actually went down to record and my friend Zach, wow. who I spoke of earlier, helped mm-hmm. me find a studio. Mm-hmm. We got Beckhen in and recorded most of the tracks right then and there during that visit. And I brought those tracks back to Nashville and overdubbed on them at my studio. Okay. Um, and we also did a couple of other overdubs in Haiti that one of the local engineers there recorded and mm. sent files to me. Fascinating. Uh, for my sessions. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, listeners, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention way back on episode 120 of this show, my guest was singer-songwriter Mi Yu, who is from Haiti herself. So if you never heard that one, go back and listen to her. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment, where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is be memorable, not because of some ridiculous gimmick, but be memorable just like guests on this show have been memorable in such a way that I'm able to remember and refer back to their episode. They made an impression, they contributed value, they had good content, and they did all this by simply being themselves, by not being selfish, by wanting to help others. Even when you're not on stage performing, you want people to recall who you are for all the right reasons. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. That's really great to know, isn't it? Very helpful, right? Bruce gives out a tip just like that on every episode of this show, and there's an easy way to get all those that he gave out over the first 160 episodes. The ebook series called Bruce's Bonus Book contains four volumes, and they're all available for purchase and immediate download at www.brucesbonusbook.com. Order yours now for helpful tips that you can apply to your career right away. Back on episode 245 a few weeks ago, Michael Peterson talked about when he was the musical director of a show called Raiding the Country Vault. Similarly, Chris, tell the listeners about serving as the musical director for the Sleight of Hand Band. Oh, (laughs) Um, so that came about because I had a children's jazz project that I did uh, some years ago with a friend. And one thing led to another, and we were invited to take that project up to Lincoln Center uh, and perform it as part of their family series. And on that trip, I uh, met a lot of the contacts at Lincoln Center. They, they were they were wonderful and accommodating and hospitable, and the gig was great. Very, very well attended. Um, and my cousin was helping Mario the Magician. Um, he's a magician. We, he really, he's much more than that, but I'll, I'll set that aside. <laughs> but she had been managing him and pitched our contacts at Lincoln Center the idea of having Mario perform for the same series, but incorporate live music with the show. Um, and she, and so she called me about that. And the Lincoln Center folks knew, you know, we all knew each other, so they were... Um, we had worked together. They knew me and said, yeah, it sounds really fun. Let's try it out and see what happens. And, and uh, so we basically built an improv- improvisatorial music presentation of his, of his show, mm. um, which is really crazy because these, he, he um, is used to working on his own. So that led to the question, well, how do you score something like this? What do you play? And, uh-huh. and jazz Jazz seemed to be the thing. We it's you know, we can accomplish a lot with a few people. 
and jazz musicians uh, are quick responders and and also appreciate the playfulness of a, of a show <laughs> like that. And so, yeah, we just got together in a rehearsal studio in New York for a day and just tried to figure out what this sounded and looked like and how we okay. were going to do this. And okay. we came up ways of of each having our own set lists and the band had lists of sort of cues that we could refer back to if we needed based on what he would do in his performance. But we wound up doing a number of these. Actually, that first one was so successful. They decided to do it another half dozen times or so. We performed in libraries, outstanding public libraries all throughout Manhattan and Queens. And, uh, um, we got, you know, it, 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 we tweaked it and it got better as it went but it was so funny because his routine would never really be the same twice. <laughs> um, so we would have to learn how to read him and know what, wow, anticipate what wow. was coming or be able to wow. um, fill, fill gaps where they, where we needed to uh, and keep do it all with a sense of humor. So fantastic. And listeners, I want to yeah. back up and make sure that you understand this is a big deal that we're talking about here. If you don't know, and I, be disappointed if you don't know this, but the Lincoln Center is in New York. It's the home to the New York Philharmonic, the New York City Ballet, the New York City Opera. So another nice feather in Chris's cap for sure. Chris, while we're talking about other hats that you wear in the intro, I said that you're also a music supervisor. I hear that and I immediately think of film projects. Am am I on the right track there or is it actually something different? Yes, I've uh, I've done... uh written music for a web series. I create by commission music for licensing for use in, um, sometimes they're for libraries. Sometimes I will get commissioned to um, provide music, whether it's recorded or pre-recorded for, um, for short films, um, in-house sorts of productions by different companies. So okay. I've done that a few times. Okay. Well, it's ironic that last night you performed in Milwaukee because the Chris Donahue resume continues that you have co-written numerous Q projects for a company called License Lab, which is based in Milwaukee. But explain to the listeners what Q projects, what media cues are, because I'm not sure that everyone understands what that means. Gotcha. Online, there are music libraries where... Um, you can go and you can browse through music that is um, generally short in duration, anywhere between two and three minutes, give or take. And uh, libraries are set up so that music editors can go through and find music that suits their projects, and then they will license that music, pay a fee to use that music in a certain uh, advertisement, film, television show, what have you. But because music and production has gotten so democratic, there is so much music out there that it can be overwhelming for music editors who want to find a piece for, you know, you just have to weed through a lot of stuff. So License Lab's model is pretty brilliant. They have a staff of people that work one-on-one with music editors so that they can act as consultants and say, okay, what are you hearing for the, uh, a music editor will reach out to someone at license lab and the license lab person says, okay, what do you have in mind? And listens to their responses. Okay. We're thinking a, B and C, something like that. License lab says, gotcha. We'll put together a playlist for you out of our archive. And mm. you let us know if we're on the right track. So they actually help curate these plays for the music editors, music editors, which saves them a ton of time. Yeah, of going to a royalty-free website and sitting there for who knows how much time and clicking play and clicking play and clicking play <laughs> until you find one yeah. that you like or don't like. Yeah, and they also are uh, uh, creative consultants. So they, like with um, with that Manic Jazz project, I think the descript- the idea was, and, and I also work with a company in Nashville called Global Genius that acts as... Uh, that is a partner in these, they, they partner with License Lab on some of these projects. So, um, okay. and that is how I got to know the folks at License Lab through my friends in Nashville at, at a company called Global Genius. Okay. But with the Manic Jazz Project, all the principals can say, we want something uh, uh, like, we want some cues that sound like they could have been used in the movie Whiplash, mm. but we only want there to be, uh, we want it all trios. We don't want 
larger ensembles. It has to be just three players. Interesting. Um, yeah, and and challenging, and uh, you have, you know, it definitely, uh, it definitely uh, requires some some serious thought, but and uh, uh, how to do the, on how to do that well. Yeah, you know? yeah. And and deliver, but that's sort of right in the sweet spot for any creative person. Like, hmm, I don't know. Let's <laughs> let's scratch at that idea. What does it sound like? What could? Uh, it's it's also one way that that people like me tend to get ourselves in over our heads, um, <laughs> mostly and mostly for the better. Obviously, not all the time. You know, you try to you just try to to hit more than you miss. There um, you go. And um, but it's really fun to to take something like that that. Um, like that whiplash soundtrack is so big and cacophonous that like, well, what does that sound like for a three, for a trio? And I realized, well, it sounds like Ornette Coleman. So, uh, or, or, um, some of the, uh, the miles electric albums, you know, Mm. and, uh, yeah, your own, your own interpretation, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm talking today with bassist, producer, music supervisor, and platinum-selling songwriter Chris Donahue. Visit his official website, which is chrisdonahue.me. We, of course, will have a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Follow Chris on Twitter and on Instagram. He has music posted that you can check out on SoundCloud, which, of course, is one of the many platforms that this show is available on. And for those of you out there who are aspiring performers, Chris offers both bass instruction and music coaching. Get in touch with him through his website to inquire about details on those services. I do hope that you're enjoying Now Hear This Entertainment, both this episode as well as the many others before it. And as a result, I do hope that you'll consider supporting the show through Patreon. There are expenses involved that the Patreon can help offset. So if you find value and listening to this show every week, whether it's educational value from me and my guests and or whether it's entertainment value, I would really appreciate your consideration of whatever level you feel most comfortable getting in at with the Patreon. Just go to our show website, nhte.net, and there's a support us on Patreon button that you can click on to go learn more and participate. Chris, at the end of September, you joined the Nashville Symphony in accompanying Christian Chenoweth. How different is it performing in that type of environment as opposed to something like these Emmylou Harris shows that you're out on the road doing right now? It's in most ways very different. Um, But in some ways you get to bring the best of what you do in one in one creative realm or one professional realm into another. Mm. So for me, um, working with do, doing symphony dates and working in uh, orchestras for theater shows, which which I do regularly, is work that I absolutely love. Uh, it's when you're doing recording sessions and you're working for other producers, or if I'm doing a project where I'm I'm carrying a lot of weight, if not all of it, and I have to come up with ideas and all this, it's really refreshing, especially if you love musical theater, say, to to be able to join with uh, a dozen or more of your colleagues, mm-hmm. or less, give or take, mm-hmm. and be handed a score, say, just pl- play this. <laughs> um, and even within even within the restrictions of playing your written parts, though, um, especially when you're performing in musical theater, you're interacting with people that frequently you can't see. You can't see the vocalists, and wow. you're also in, obviously your first point of interaction is with the conductor. You know, going down right. the chain, all the musicians through the conductor, who's who's um, uh, leading also the singer sort of acting as a hub. So it's, it's very challenging and also very rewarding in that way. Mm. And so with, but as for what I said about bringing aspects of your creative self from one realm into another, what I mean in the context of your question about Kristen is that when I showed up for the rehearsals, her musical director said, uh, She's going to interact with you. So I'm just preparing you. Anything could happen. <laughs> I don't always know what's going to happen. And, and 
so what this meant was that during there was a song where uh, there's a I think I had a 16 bar bass solo up top with the vocal or where it was just uh, a duet between Kristen and I walking uh-huh. walking bass part uh-huh. and Kristen singing along um, and she got up on the piano and started making eye contact with me. Of course, I'm trying to read a, a, a medium up walking baseline at the wow. same time and look wow. at her. And I, and I was joking with a friend of mine who was playing piano after that rehearsal. I said, I have a call to make here. I can either play the ink and miss the moment or try to do both <laughs> or um, just I know this tune. I'm just going to watch her and play the changes Yeah, and I'll get back on the page. When, and <laughs> as, as the performances went on, we did, I think, Oh, three or four. But anyway, with each, each performance, uh, but got further away from the page in that opening 16 bars to where the last performance, I'm just like, Hey, at this point, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just going to look at her and enjoy wow. it the whole time. Wow. And that's neat. And, and be in that moment. Yeah, that's neat. Well, my apologies. I introduced you as a multi-platinum selling songwriter, and we haven't even talked about that aspect of all the things that you do yet. Which songs, which artists have been a part of that multi-platinum sales? I get to uh, make that claim thanks to some songs that I co-wrote with my friend Matt Slocum on the Sixpence None the Richer Ah. album that came out many years ago with the big song kiss me mm-hmm. uh, major radio hit and yeah. they had a couple of others after that and matt and i co-wrote two songs on that project which went multi-platinum wow um, wow and still getting still getting played fantastic uh, fantastic uh, yeah I, I worked with that band uh, for a time in the in the late 90s but by the time we they did that album i i came in to play on those two songs that matt and i had co-written together but okay my neighbor was their bass player full-time at that point. Gotcha. You are quite a gear person, Chris. I I should point out, listeners, that Chris is a Boulder Creek Guitars artist. You have heard me say on previous episodes that Boulder Creek does guitars, ukuleles, and basses. In fact, earlier when we were talking about being a musical director, I mentioned episode 245 of the show and Michael Peterson, who I believe has four Boulder Creek guitars, we also had Love and a 38 bass player Justin Emmerd on episode 218 of this show, and he plays Boulder Creek. And Chris, I believe you play an acoustic bass from Boulder Creek, the EBR3? Um, I do. I have a couple of them, actually, ah. in my possession right now. <clears throat> with uh, acoustic basses, I, I was never really happy with most of the ones that I had played. And plus I didn't have a really burning need for one for many, many years. And, uh, a couple of years ago I was touring with Tom Jones, singer, Tom Jones, yep. and we did a tour and then Tom was asked to play at the bridge school benefit in Northern California, uh, Neil Young's big benefit concert that he puts on every year to benefit the bridge school for, um, uh, uh, special needs children and the the deal with that gig is that everyone's supposed to be acoustic uh, so they don't want any amps on stage drums are acoustic obviously yeah. but everything else everything else has to be an acoustic instrument and i thought wow. well it's time to start looking at acoustic bass guitars because i'll have a double bass there but um, <laughs> i don't some of his songs need the need the the electric or you know the electric approach the fretted bass approach and and I came across um, the Boulder Creek website and looked at a few of the reviews and and um, and honestly, I can't remember if I got if I even got to check one out. Um, I think what happened is that I got in touch with Jeff Strandmetz, who owns Boulder Creek, and said, "Hey, I'm going to be out there because there Boulder Creek is located um, not far from Shoreline Amphitheater, where, uh-huh. where the Bridge School concert is held." And so um, uh, maybe I did play one. Anyway, I'm just having a hard time remembering remembering (laughs) that. But point is, Jeff came out to my hotel and brought a few basses and left them with me for the couple of days that I was out there. Wow. And so I got to try them out um, 
in working conditions you know, at, that, yeah, yeah. At, that, at that Tom Jones gig. And I was so delighted um, that when we hooked up after, uh, after the shows were over, I wound up buying one of them from him there. Wow. And then we've remained in touch ever since. Um, they've done a travel base that, that I've got, which is really um, cool and uh, dark sounding, similar to a ukulele bass. Um, and I've got a fretted uh, Boulder Creek travel bass. And I've also got, I think I've, I don't know. I think I think I'm caretaking one of their uh, spruce top <laughs> fretless bases, acoustic bases, and um, I put flat wound strings for anyone who's interested. I put flat wounds on all these, or tape wound strings on these acoustic bass guitars because I prefer a warmer, mellower tone to the to the bright, sort of brash tone that the bronze strings have on these instruments. Gotcha. And, I love it. I use them all the time. I'm going to use the fretless one this week for on someone's record. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been great because not having ever been impressed by an acoustic bass guitar, I finally found one that I could, well, I, there you go. I, I love it. I love it. I absolutely nice. Love it. Nice. And listeners, if you didn't hear it back on episode 241, Jeff Stramitz, who Chris is referring to, which again, yes, he is the president and CEO of Boulder Creek musical instruments, but he also performs regularly. He's a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. Go back and listen to episode 241, and Jeff talks about why Boulder Creek guitars are so different from what you're used to seeing out there. In the meantime, you can check them out more at bouldercreekguitars.com. It's B-O-U-L-D-E-R, bouldercreekguitars.com. Chris, we're about out of time, but let's have you do two fun questions before I let you go. One is, in terms of bass players... Do you have an all-time idol? No, <clears throat> I don't, because I listen to so many different kinds of music uh, that that um, I have about a dozen. Okay, okay. And they each manifest themselves in my own life and playing in different ways. Um, sometimes deliberately, sometimes <laughs> I only discover. Like if I'm intrigued by something that I did or I like something that I did, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to look at it and say what who is that who am i trying to wow. rip off there? neat, <laughs> <laughs> neat. <laughs> that's kind of fun uh the other question is out of all the artists that you've performed with all these live shows that you've done can you pick out one short cool highlight for us yes would, um there are many but <clears throat> one that rises immediately to mind is um because it i think it i think it uh speaks to the the really joy just the basic joy of making music with your friends or your colleagues mm -hmm. and and the communal aspect of it i i a few years ago was playing with the artist buddy miller a singer songwriter producer who is very influential in the whole world of american folk and modern folk and roots music um buddy miller is a He's within that world. He's an icon. And if you don't know about him, you should. Um, he's um, absolutely amazing. So I do book gigs with Buddy uh, pretty regularly. We were doing a gig at the for the Americana Music Association Conference in Nashville, which takes place every September. And Buddy performs a lot. With, Buddy is the reason that I know Emmy Lou okay. and everyone that I've met through Emmy Lou. Buddy. It all started with Buddy. Wow. Um, so Buddy performs frequently with Patty Griffin, and we were doing a, a Buddy band show at a club. Patty was there. And this was when Buddy and Robert Plant were working together a lot mm. on their Band of Joy record. And Robert, I think, had uh, gotten a place in Nashville for a time. And anyway, he came down to, to the Cannery Ballroom where we were playing the show. And sat in with us, and I had—I think I had played with him before, right? Uh, he, when he was singing, uh, you're talking about Robert Plant. Robert Plant, yes. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> um, so I say, I think I had already played with him by that time. However, uh, we did one of Buddy's so Buddy songs that night where Robert didn't sing, and he just stood next to me playing harmonica mm. the whole time. And it was a—it was a, a pretty. Um, forceful uh and raucous 
Buddy song, if I remember correctly. And I got to in that moment with like realize I, I don't I don't know that I belong here with these people, <laughs> but I am going to make the absolute most of this moment and and oh my gosh, to listen to Robert Plant cut loose on a harmonica standing at my at my left shoulder was um, wow. beyond wow so that's definitely one and then pete seeger would be the other one but well i I'll, i like that I'll story and, and i like the i like the Kristen chenoweth story too those are two of what i'm sure are, are many chris just like we did at the start of the show we're going to close with another tune that you composed and recorded earlier this year one called bedsty beatdown before we let you go is there anything further that you want to say about this specifically I, you did talk about the project at length but i just want to give you Another chance in case there's anything further that you want to add before we play this. Uh, let's see. This was the first piece that I wrote for that project. Um, and the first one we recorded that day. So it was it was an important song because it was the first time I was going to hear any of this music come off the page. Uh-huh. And hear it in the... In, in real life, in the, in the trio context with Brian and Jeff. And I think maybe that was a, that was either a first or a second take. So wow. needless wow. to say, I took a deep exhalation <laughs> after like, okay, this is going to be all right. <laughs> I can, I can, I can keep it together for the rest of this day with these guys. Um, and it's a re- and it's a really, it's, it's a, it's basically a, uh, a blues, a rather um, abstract kind of blues piece, but it's it's fun, uh, and and uh, um, yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fun, and I really appreciate you making the time to do this. So thank you, and continued best wishes. Thank you so much for having me. It was absolutely my honor to do this, and I hope some of what I had to to offer is useful to somebody. (laughs) I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. My pleasure. That's going to do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to bass player, producer, music supervisor, and songwriter Chris Donahue. Do check out his official website, chrisdonahue.me. We will put a link to it from the show page for this episode at nhte.net. And follow Chris on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember that he has music posted online that you can listen to on SoundCloud, which is one of the platforms that this show is available on. He does list dates on his website for who he is playing with when, so keep up with that info as well. And again, if you are interested in bass instruction or musician coaching, look at chrisdonahue.me for details and then get in touch through the contact page to inquire further. As I mentioned before, there is a Patreon for you to help support this show, which allows me to keep putting it out every week. Go to the show website, nhte.net, and click on the Support Us on Patreon button. It is a lot of work. We're past four and a half years now of doing a show every single week, so the support through Patreon helps me keep NHTE going. Thank you for your consideration with that. I sincerely do appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening to another episode. We'll send you out today with another song from Chris Donahue. This is the one he just talked about. It's called Bed-Stuy Beatdown. Beatdown.